Hi, everybody. This is Michael Collins. I'm Michael Christy Cuts in Winnebago. I'm here. Hi, Christy. And this is Judy Knudsen in Brown County. Good afternoon. Hi, Judy. Good to hear your voice. I'm glad you're doing this topic. Oh, good. I buy these monthly, and they, everybody at the bank looks at me like I'm crazy <laughs> to be buying savings bonds. You may be crazy, but it's not because you buy crazy, crazy uh, savings bonds. <laughs> They're like, you're the only person who does this. <laughs> Peggy Norgren is here. Hi, Peggy. Hello. This is Marma McIntyre. Hello. Hi. So I sent a, um, on Friday late, I sent out a uh, set of notes, issue brief, essentially. Um, it was a little rough, I see, this morning, a few typos in it. But I'm basically going to use that as, as a reference point today. Um, I would... At, at shortly, hopefully, we'll have an FYI blog available um, along with the audio recording of this call so that with, for any one of these lunchtime calls, you can listen to the audio and, and see the notes you know, located on an, an FYI blog. So that will hopefully happen before the next blog in August. So I appreciate you um, uh, tolerating getting these things last minute as well as a reminder. So hopefully we'll start to, to clean that, up, that process up as we move towards the the uh, FYI sites for distributing this information. Um, but I welcome everybody today uh, who's on live and is listening on uh, recording um, for our topic, which is savings bonds. And, you know, in some ways an age-old topic, but, um, you know, I guess everything old is new again, and there's there's a, a movement in particularly the asset-building field to really rethink about, rethink the role of savings bonds, um, particularly as a savings vehicle for... Um, lower-income people for the unbanked, and as well as for, you know, more mainstream uses as well because of certain features that, that savings bonds have. Um, so I know that there are um, extension publications all across uh, the country, including in Wisconsin, that cover savings bonds. I think the um, the additional spin I'll share today is just sort of a slightly more modern, uh, you know, view given the financial crisis and given some changes with savings bond products. And also the applicability of bonds as a savings vehicle for the underbanked or, um, you know, people who, who don't have traditional uh, savings services. Um, before I get started, does anybody have any questions or comments? I heard, I heard Judy say that she's a regular bond user and of interest. Does anybody else have sort of general comments to share before we get started? Okay. Um, well, let me just first start, about, start with just clarifying uh, what I mean when I say savings bonds. There are lots of different kinds of bonds. Um, you can buy state and municipal bonds. You can buy treasury bills. You can buy treasury bonds. So there's lots of different state of uh, investment vehicles out there that have the name bond on them. You know, they're all different from a stock, uh, which is an equity where you actually have some, some capital at risk. Um, bonds are basically loans. It doesn't matter whether it's a savings bond or there's some other kind of bond. Um, where you are loaning some principal amount in return for some kind of income over time, some kind of cash flow. You know, sometimes that all comes at the end, sometimes it comes on a regular basis, but that's, you know, essentially what a bond is. A bond usually doesn't have any risk in terms of the capital. You get, you're gonna get your initial principal back. What's risky about some bonds is that if you wanna try to sell them before they are due, before they mature, before they, you know, the end of their life at which they said they would pay out something, um, sometimes they can be hard to sell. So there's some liquidity risk. It's, it, you know, if you want to get rid of a, some esoteric corporate bond, it may be hard to sell it. 
in some some kind of secondary market. Um, in general, bonds are going to pay a lower rate of return than you're going to get on average from an equity. Although, if you compare the average rates of return on essentially any form of bond the last two or three years to what the stock market has paid, you'll find that um, while bonds haven't paid very well either, um, compared to some dismal years in the stock market, um, bonds have actually done okay. But essentially, when you buy bonds, you're buying um, a, a relatively guaranteed return, lower rate of return, but less risk. Um, so you're, you're uh, taking on a little bit less risk, although there is that liquidity risk if you, if you buy you know, some sort of bond that's going to be hard to sell or some high-risk bond, something like that. Along the bond continuum... Um, you know, corporate bonds or junk bonds are sort of the most risky. And then there are the government bonds, the municipal bonds. Those are less risky. We rarely see municipalities default, even though it, it is much talked about in, in the newspapers. Um, at the very far end are U.S. Treasury bills and bonds, and then there's savings bonds. And the difference between bills and bonds that, um, you know, the Treasury issues on a regular basis and savings bonds is that the bills and bonds are really uh, they're auctioned by Treasury in New York City at the at the Federal Reserve. They're they're auctioned you know, electronic auctions by these special broker dealers who who get these bonds out in the market and then you can purchase them. Um, and, and actually, you can purchase them directly, not even through a broker dealer. Um, but those are you know designed to be sold and traded and and held in large denominations. Usually, institutions buy them. Very rarely, unless you're a high net worth person, are you engaging in those markets directly. For most consumers, they're buying treasury bills or bonds through mutual funds or something like that, or or your pension fund is on your behalf. You don't even know it. The savings bond is a very different sort of product. It's it's not designed at all for use by institutions. It's designed for consumers. The savings bond is something that you you buy for yourself or you buy for somebody else as a gift and are are consumer-oriented, and they're designed to be very easy to get, very easy to cash, um, you, you know, it doesn't involve a broker or dealer. It doesn't involve any kind of fees, anything like that. So it's a very particular form of of, uh, of savings bond, or a very particular form of bond, the savings bond, um, that's issued by the U.S. Treasury. They've been around in various forms for, for hundreds of years. I mean, various governments have, have issued something like a savings bond for a long time. Um, savings bonds in this country really took off, I guess, as a result of the war bonds. Um, and then in the 50s really became solidified as a as a savings vehicle that a lot of people used at that time, buying various series of savings bonds as a savings product. In the 1960s, when you filled out your tax return, you could actually buy a savings bond right there on the spot. That was done away with in the 70s, and it actually just came back last year. And that's one of the reasons why I think bonds are getting a little more attention. They're starting to get more into the you know, regular use because of that that change in, in the way that, that you can now buy them in your taxes. And I'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Um, but that's just one example of how, how bonds have sort of gotten a second wind of late. So let me first start with um, why would anybody buy savings bonds? I mean, why, why, do, the, why do the bank <laughs> tellers look at Judy like she's a little crazy when she's buying savings bonds? Um, and, and the truth is, is that in the 1990s and 2000s, when the stock market was going crazy, there were lots of financial planners who would just, you know, roll their eyes at savings bonds and say, you know, what a ridiculous thing. And they offer this piddly little return. Why would you ever want those? And the last two or three years, it's been a big come up, come up on for them because it's clear now, um, well, there might be some advantages to these bonds that, that, uh, 
you know, maybe you don't have another investment. So one, the biggest one, the biggest reason to buy savings bonds is they really are risk-free. In finance, we talk about, well, what's the return of this particular investment relative to a risk-free asset? And the risk-free asset is usually a treasury uh, bill or bond, you know, or a savings bond. That's essentially, um, if, if savings bonds defaulted, we've got bigger problems. <laughs> so if, if the government can't make can't make payments on savings bonds, we're in big trouble. So this is, you know, backed by what they call the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Default is extremely unlikely, and, you know, it would be a, a you know, catastrophic sort of situation in which they no longer pay. So it's essentially a risk-free, you're going to get your principal back. Um, you may not get as much interest as you like, but you're going to get your, your principal back. So that's the number one reason. Number two, there are no fees. It is impossible to find financial products that don't have fees. Sometimes they say no fees, but they're hidden somewhere else, like you're getting a lower rate of return, or there's some kind of fee to get out of it, um, or if you want your statements, you have to pay a fee, or if you don't have a balance of so much, you pay a fee. None of that exists with savings bonds. There are just no fees. No fees to buy it, no fees to monitor it, no fees to sell it, um, never any fee. And, you know, one of the things that's been frustrating, I think, for people who have mutual funds the last few years is that returns are so low, once the fund manager takes out their fees, you're left with nothing. Um, and so this no fee thing becomes really important in a, a low return environment like we have right now. Um, so no fees is really important, and I think that's one of the reasons why that, that, that savings bonds has been tur- have been turned to as a potential product for um, the unbanked. One of the reasons why the unbanked don't use banking services is because the fees are relative to their low savings amounts pretty high. Um, so savings bonds have some some uh, nice features to them. Um, another reason why bonds are nice is that they um, don't have any minimum balance. If you've um, had a checking account in the past and, and had some trouble bouncing checks and you're in check systems, that in no way prevents you from getting a savings bond. Um, so it has, um, you know, this ni- nice features for novices in the financial market as well as people who have had trouble with financial markets in the past. Um, so like I said, it's a, it's a good product for the unbanked or the underbanked or people who've opted out of the banking system for whatever reason. Um, a fourth reason why bonds are nice is that they are they are liquid. So people sometimes think that they have to hold them for 30 years or whatever the term is, and you really don't. You really can cash them out anytime. But they're not easy to cash out. So you can't take them to the 7-Eleven or to the gas station to cash them out. And when you do cash them out, there may be a little bit of penalty if you bought the bond in less than uh, the last five years or the last year in particular. You, know, you may give up part of your interest or or all of your interest, depending on how soon you cash it out. But that's actually a good thing. For some people, you know, you've heard of the trick of freezing your credit card in a, a block of ice in the freezer because it slows you down and makes you consider your, your decision. In some ways, that constraint on a savings bond helps people out. It's, you can't go to your ATM and take money out of it like maybe you can with your um, debit card on your savings account. Um, so it has a little bit more of, a, of an impediment to cashing out, but it still, still lets you get your money back. and it has a little bit of a penalty to maybe make you think twice about taking it out within that first five years. Um, so that's actually a good thing. That little bit of barrier may slow people down and force them, you know, when, when they really want the money to do something else, to take a time out and think about their savings goals and stick to their plan and exercise a little bit of self-control. The last reason why I think about savings bonds is they are flexible. Um, it's not like your 401k, which is used for retirement, or your 529, which is used for education, or, you know, on and on we can go with all these restricted accounts that are out there. You can use the money for whatever you want. You can um, use it for your own use. You can give it to somebody else. 
Um, you can do lots of different things with it. Um, virtually anybody can buy a savings bond if they have a Social Security number or a tax ID number. And minors can own them. So, you know, my daughter, when she was six weeks old, got savings bonds as soon as she got a Social Security number. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're really nice in that aspect. Um, when I've done some research at, um, at low-income tax sites offering savings bonds, some of the biggest buyers are women in their, you know, late 50s and 60s who are buying them for, for their grandkids. And we talked to them about why they did that. They said, well, you know, I, I would really like to give my kids some money for their future, but I can't be sure of how that money will be spent. And so this way, it's, you know, at least I have some assurance maybe that they won't, it's in their name, um, so they have to cash it out. So in some ways, they, you know, my hope is that it'll, it'll last a little bit longer than if I just gave them the cash or a check, um, which they don't know where it'll go. So that, you know, that um, illiquidity aspect of it is, is somewhat nice if you're thinking about these as gifts. Um, another nice thing about bonds is that they, you, the, the actual paper is kind of just a piece of paper. So they're registered in your name. Um, and not transferable, so nobody can steal it. Um, they can't steal your numbers. I mean, they're yours, and they're, they're registered that way. Um, so that's a, a nice thing about that. Um, I included a link in the the background issue brief um, for the D2D Fund, d2dfund.org. D2D Fund is a nonprofit in Boston that was started by a, um, a professor at Harvard Business School named Peter Tufano. Uh, and Peter Tufano is uh, just a tremendous resource for the Believe it or not, there's just somebody at the Harvard Business School who really cares about low-income people, and he he really is, you know, his research is very vested in how do we make financial markets work at the, you know, the tails of the spectrum. And he's the one who really began, I would say, five, six years ago to, he did a, a, a just a white paper saying, you know, why don't we rethink savings bonds? What's, what's, what's up with savings bonds? Why don't we rethink them? He worked a lot with the Treasury Department, both in the Bush and the Obama administrations to include the um, savings bond in the IRS uh, 1040 as part of the um, tax return of the refund. So you can get your refunds in the form of a bond. Um, so it's just been a tremendous resource for that. So that, that D2D fund.org is a good site to check out on a number of topics, including the savings bond topic. And really, Peter Tufano is the one who, who we all owe a lot of uh, gratitude to for getting this topic to be at the fore again. Um, what's interesting is in the 90s, as the Internet came into to being, the Treasury really... Um, began to see savings bond as savings bonds as this sort of nuisance that they're you know they were really more interested in these high flying bonds and bills and who cares about the consumer market and for a while tried to make savings bonds just something that you could only buy on the internet and and much more difficult to use than they are now you know you had to use a social security number and you couldn't buy them for somebody else and you know tried to really ratchet down the use of savings bonds and you know in part I think because of Peter's and others' advocacy they've sort of turn the corner on that are beginning to, to see the assets of these as a savings vehicle and to make them easier to, to get and to hold uh, than was the trend for a little while there. So I'd encourage you to check out that site. Before I get into the types of bonds, I just want to take a break and see if anybody has any questions or comments. Hi, Michael. This is Peggy Allo. I have a question. I'm just thinking of some of the arguments that sometimes come up from uh, lower income people about, you know, why it's hard to save or they can't save or don't save. And I'm wondering how saving bo- savings bonds are treated in terms of an asset, you know, if they're trying to qualify for um, uh, Social Security or if they're concerned about 
that they don't want to have too much money in, in the savings, you know, if they owe back child support or things like that, you know, garnishments. Um, I'm wondering how savings bonds are treated as an asset. Well, they they are recorded. So if there was a search done against their Social Security number, they would pop up. In general, a lot of the asset cutoffs, well, I guess it depends upon the state and upon whether you're talking about garnishment or some other, uh, you know, Medicaid or some other program, what, what their cutoffs are. Um, generally, you're talking about sort of the 5,000 threshold, though, I know, at least for Medicaid. And, you know, so th- I think it is an I- it's still an issue. We, we have these problems with these asset tests in various programs, and, and these are not in any ways hidden from that, um, those kinds of asset tests. Um, so those, those are still an issue. I certainly have heard of cases where individuals have been denied a program because of some asset test and they appeal it and they actually are able to, to make some progress because they argue that that particular asset is for a particular purpose. And I don't know if that, um, that savings bonds would help with that argument, but I know, for example, retirement funds are, you know, have been treated as differently or, or education savings have been treated as differently, those kinds of things. Um, like in Wisconsin, for several programs, they disregard some value of cars. You know, that's an example of, of when policies actually have changed a little bit. But it, it is a, an important point. Um, and, you know, bonds are recorded. I guess that's the main answer to your question, which is they're not, you know, it's not like you can evade <laughs> the, the notice of some of these programs with these vehicles, with these products. Okay. I'm, I, well, I'm just thinking if anybody can invade it, maybe some of our clients that can be creative, you know, yeah. them in kids' names or whatever. Okay, thanks. Yeah, and I mean, certainly um, putting uh, account putting uh, the name of the minor might be one way to go about that. But I certainly, that's both a legal issue and, and gets into, you know, how do you navigate these programs, and that's not something I know much about. Any other questions? I should have... Uh, Known that you were going to ask a question about garnishment. I've never, I need to spend more time learning about garnishment law. Okay, so as we think about types of savings bonds in the world today, there are basically two types. Um, The E and the I, and the E is actually EE, which distinguishes it from a previous generation of E. And within E and II, there are two forms, paper and electronic. So basically you have four different, four varieties, four, uh, I don't know, species, I guess, of of bonds that are out there. And paper and electronic is exactly what you would think it is. E and I probably aren't, but we'll we'll go through each of these. Um, So E-bonds are the sort of classic bonds, um, particularly the E-paper bonds. You know, you you buy them um, at the bank and you pay $50 for a $100 bond or $25 for a $50 bond. And then in 30 years, when it matures, you get your $100. Um, So it's sort of that classic um, form of the bond. Now, not all e-bonds are like that. So the paper bonds, I said, are the ones that you pay for half your face value. If you go on to the, um, and we'll talk a lot about the website in a little bit, bit, but the um, treasurydirect.gov website, you can buy electronic bonds. And so electronic bonds, you actually pay the face value. So you pay $100 for a $100 bond and and so on from there. Um, For each of these types of bonds I'm talking about today, so the paper EE, the electronic EE, the paper I and the electronic I, you can buy up to $5,000 per calendar year. So in essence, you could buy $20,000 per person per calendar year if you were to spread your purchases across all these different kinds of bonds. I don't know anybody who actually does that. They usually just max out in one category, but um, it's certainly possible. And if you're a married couple, you could buy 
you know, twice that amount, so that'd be 40,000, and so on and so on. So what are the advantages of the paper bonds? Well, you know, for, like for my kid's grandmother, it's, they want to have a piece of paper so that they can, you know, have the, the kid receive and, and sort of, you know, remind them of the fact that they have this bond. And the paper bonds are kind of, uh, even for adults, sometimes hard to understand the sort of, you know, pay X amount but get Y amount later. And then if you want to cash it out early, it takes a little bit of work to think about how much do I actually get if I were to redeem this. Paper bonds are only sold at, at specific denominations, so nice round numbers like, you know, 75, 100, 200, etc. You usually buy the bond um, at a financial institution, and then they're mailed to you in the mail, and they come in a little brown envelope from, from the treasury. Um, the paper itself isn't critical because, like I said, they're registered, but, you know, generally you want to keep those someplace safe, like a safe deposit box or a safe or wherever you keep your other documents. Um, and you can convert paper to electronic using the treasury.gov site. So there is some, some flexibility to manage these things online later. Um, the electronic bonds you, you buy online, there your minimum is $25, but you can pay any amount you want. So if you wanted to buy $26.50 in bonds, you could. Um, so it has a, a nice feature of that. Um, the electronic bonds are useful if you have access to the Internet. They're also, ac- they're also useful if you want to do um, direct deposits. You could have part of your paycheck or a percentage of your paycheck put into electronic bonds a lot easier than you can with the paper bonds. In all cases with EE bonds, and I think we'll hear the same story with I bonds, if you cash them out five years after purchase, you'll lose your last three months interest. Um, after five years, you can cash them out any time with no penalty at all. Um, generally, you hold them for you could hold them for up to 30 years. Not everyone does, but that's certainly an option as well. It's important after 30 years, they pay nothing. So if you have any bonds that are more than 30 years old, you definitely want to cash them in because they're not they're doing nothing. They're duds. And so there's a there's billions of dollars of bonds that people are holding which actually no longer pay any return at all. So that is one educational topic to let people know about is once they've matured, once they hit that 30 year mark, you want to turn those in and or either either cash them in and buy more bonds or just cash them in and do something with the cash. So the EE bonds pay a rate of return. It's a um, it's based basically on the treasury yield. Uh, so when the treasury is out there in, on its auction selling its bills and bonds, it comes up with a baseline treasury yield of, off which the EE bond returns are set. Um, EE bonds are a little confusing because the rates of return really vary based on when they were issued. So. Um, if you bought bonds between 97 and 2005, they were based on a different kind of benchmark than they are now. And this is a case where you just want to go to treasury.gov, and you can enter in information about the bonds, and it'll tell you what their current value is. Um, you know, it's much easier with bonds issued after 2005 because basically there's a six-month period for each bond. Um, if you bought the bond in that six-month period, they know you know exactly what the rate of return is and what its current yield is or what its current value is. So it's just a lookup table. Like, did you buy your bond between January and June of 2006? Well, then their value is X. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's simpler for more recent issues than for the older issues. And that's, that's an example of the kind of thing I was talking about before, where for a while we made these things harder to use rather than easier to use, or reverting back to easier to use methods. So EE bonds may be the ones you're most familiar with. They've been around for a long time. I bonds are relatively newer. Probably the last decade or so they've come into to effect. 
Um, and I bonds are probably my personal favorite bond um, for a number of reasons. But you know, I bonds are the I and I bond stands for inflation. Um, so essentially, what an I bond does is protects you from inflation. Now you may say to yourself, well, really, you know, I remember inflation in the 80s, and that was real. We had high inflation of you know, double-digit inflation, and things were losing value left and right. But today we have very low inflation, so why do I care? Well, one is that um, the the 80s may be come back, <laughs> so it's possible that we could have high interest rates again. I, I doubt that'll happen. But uh, essentially, if if you were to be socked with high inflation like we had in the 80s, the I bonds would protect you from that. They would automatically adjust for inflation, so you always got a, a, an inflation-adjusted rate of return. Um, the other is that even if inflation remains relatively low, and let's say it doesn't stay at two or three percent, it actually goes to three or four percent, which might be more normal. Um, over time, that really adds up. So you know, it's it's one of the reasons why bonds, savings bonds, have been picked on in the past is because they didn't have that um, inflation. Protection and you know at three, four, five percent inflation, it really starts to erode your return and makes your returns um, you know pretty close to zero if you, if you don't pay attention to that. Um, so the I bond takes care of all that for you. It essentially, gives you a true risk-free return. You don't have to worry about you know having taking on the risk of inflation. So basically, twice a year, Treasury looks at the current inflation rate. They use the CPI, which you will know, probably read about in newspapers occasionally, as this index of the consumer prices. And they change what the rate of return on the I bonds are, and so they basically um, alter the. They they have two rates of return on these bonds. They have a fixed, and then the variable, and the variable is the rate of inflation. And so they they set for the next six months what's going to be the rate of return for I bonds in existence. So it's not a matter of when you bought it. It's uh you know all the I bonds sort of move up and down as as inflation changes over time. Um, so it you know very much as they. Uh, indexed for inflation, very, I, I, you know, once you understand what inflation is, it's a relatively easy concept to understand. I'm going to get the rate of inflation plus some fixed rate of return, and I never have to worry about losing money thanks to inflation. Um, again, like e-bonds, i-bonds are sold in either a paper or an electronic form. Um, the paper bonds have that quality of, you know, round, you can only bind round numbers. Um, you do buy them at face value, though, however, not not like the E-bonds where you pay half of the current value. Um, and that's because, as, as I mentioned before, the I-bonds are indexed for inflation, so it would be very challenging to figure out what the half of the value would be because it would change as inflation changes. Um, and also sold in electronic version. Electronic versions you can buy at any denomination, um, at least a $25 minimum, but any any cent, you know, 26 50 or whatever, up from there. Um, they mature in 60 years, much like e-bonds, um, and you, much like the e-bonds, you can cash them in the first five years, but you lose the last three months of interest. After five years, you can cash them without without any penalty. Um, I want to mention HH bonds, which I only mentioned because it's, it's listed, I know, in the Wisconsin um, Extension publication, and some people may still hold some HH bonds. HH bonds are no longer issued. They haven't been issued for I don't know, five, six years, and they are still in use. They pay interest every six months um, until they until they come due or until they mature, which I think generally was 30 years. Uh, so there are certainly some still out in existence. They actually pay a check, or they could pay a check. I think most people actually just had the value accrue. So they, they are still out there. 
I, at one point in time, had to cash some HH bonds, and I know it really befuddled the banking institution much more than a typical savings bond would. So it's something that you probably want to check out on the treasurydirect.gov website to figure out um, the value of before you, you try to cash them and um, get some more background on, on what's involved with those. But like I say, they're no longer available. Today it's just EE and I, and then the paper or the electronic version. I listed a, a blog, money, mymoneyblog.com, and I, I'm generally pretty skeptical about websites that are out there. But this one, at least in terms of its treatment of savings bonds, is pretty good. Um, so that would be a good place to get some some information about various types of bonds. They give lots of details on, particularly around the, the points in time when Treasury is about to announce a new I bond uh, rate and, you know, what, what sort of other ins and outs are happening in the savings bond market. So it's a good blog to, to check out, especially if you're going to do some instructions specifically around the bond topic. So I talked about these two forms of bonds, the EE and the I and the electronic and the paper. Whether or not you buy the electronic bonds or not, which is certainly the trend and certainly where Treasury is, is promoting people to do, even if you buy the paper ones, you can convert the paper ones to electronic um, or you can manage your paper ones electronically using treasurydirect.gov. This is a website that the Treasury's put together designed to do everything related to savings bills and bonds. I'm sorry, to Treasury bills and bonds for investors and for consumers. They so the website itself is is huge. You know, this is where a, a you know investment banker might do some transactions as well as you or I. They have a, a section that which is designed specifically for personal savers or for consumers. And that site is very good. I mean, they really did a nice job of laying it out, of explaining the different types of bonds, how to figure out the value. They have calculators on there to figure out the value of bonds that you might be holding, the pros and cons of buying different kinds of bonds. You know, you can obviously do most of what you need to do in managing your paper bonds at the bank. You can take a, you can take your bond to the bank to buy it, to sell it, to cash it in, to roll it over, whatever you want to do. Um, Treasury Direct is nice because you can manage it a bit more like you might manage other investments, and obviously you don't have to actually physically go to the bank to do it. You can um, do it anytime you want. It's a government website, so it's very secure. It has the highest level of security of any website I've ever come across. They actually, I'm not sure if they still do this, but for a while they were issuing these key cards, which mimic your your keyboard. And so you'd have to sort of figure out what the... Um, the translation of the letter S is by going to this um, key card, and I, I put an example in the the, um, the brief I sent along of what what a key card might look like to try to you know figure out well the letter F is actually a, a number three in this you know particular code. So it has these um, very uh, intricate codes you have to go through, more intricate than any other financial account you'll find. Um, so it's pretty secure. I, they don't require this for everybody or for every use, but. Um, it's just a, an example of, of how Treasury is taking security so seriously on this site. And, um, you know, if you're a regular user, you might end up using some of these special code kind of things. Um, but for most people, it's just a matter of having, you know, a social security number or a tax ID number and their driver's license. The one downside to the electronic purchases is you have to have a bank account. So when I talked about all these benefits of savings bonds, that's one of the downsides of the electronic version is having a bank account. Now. There are ways around this. You can have a Treasury um, Direct account, not with a bank account, but some other electronic banking form like a stored value debit card. 
And you can also set up an account there at Treasury Direct and do direct deposit from your uh, employer without having to have a bank account. But in general, if you just want to go in and buy a savings bond on your own with, with money that's in your checking or savings account, you have to link it to your savings or checking account, and that's why you have to have that account. So it's, it's one of the downsides of electronic bonds and using the website as opposed to the paper bonds or some other mechanism. I have a question. Yeah. I, I, I guess I need some clarification on m- maturity on the, on the e-bonds. The, the older e-bonds, you kept them for seven years. You bought a $50 uh, or $100 bond. You paid $50 for it in seven years you could uh, turn it in, it, it matured for the $100. So I'm confused now on maturity for the new EE bonds. So if you bought a $100 bond for $50, you would have to wait 30 years before it would mature to the $100? I'd have to check on that. So it would pay interest for up to 30 years. Right. The mm-hmm. maturity date for a current EE I'll have to look up. Yeah, because the maturity date for the old e-bonds, like I said, was seven years from the time you purchased it. So you, uh, and this is dating how old I am because well, I had bonds way when I was a youngster. But you bought, uh, you know, a $100 bond for $50 and seven, you'd hold it for seven years. You'd, you'd cash it in. You'd get the $100. If you held it longer than that, it could earn more. It, you know, it, it depends upon the rate of interest at the time it was issued. So this, I'm not sure that there's a set number like seven years. So it will stop earning interest after 30. And how long it will take to double in value depends upon its rate when it's issued for the EEs because they're essentially fixed. So at a minimum, Treasury guarantees that they'll double after 20. But it could it could double faster depending on the rate. And so what I'm trying to, I'm looking online right now to figure out what their current that's interesting. That's doubling a, period is. That's a long time compared to the old e-bonds. Well, that's, you know, rates of return now are really low. Yeah. So it takes a lot longer to double when you're only paying, you know, 1.2%. So on the treasurydirect.gov, would you be able to see those, um, you know, if you purchase bonds now, um, what the, what the maturity? Yes, they have a um, I would be. they have a calculator and they tell you. Oh. I'm, I'm trying to do it on the fly and I can't do it while I think. So, <laughs> but yes, you can definitely do that. Okay, and, that that's good. I just I just needed that clarification. Yep. And the bond calculator is really easy to use. You need to have the bond there because there's some numbers I think that you have to have to off of it. I haven't used it in a year or so, but it is very easy to use. Did you, did you remember what the current? Time to doubling is? You know, I can't, and I'm not certain the seven years is right. It's probably longer than seven years. I think years. it's longer than that right now. Well, I'm not saying it's seven years now. I'm saying the okay. old e-bonds years ago, it was seven years. And that that's how long you would hold it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at one website that has different maturity periods for double e-bonds um, based on when they were issued. And it's fluctuated anywhere from eight years, and currently they're saying 20 years. 20 years. For, for maturity or for doubling? Um, they're saying for maturity. Okay. So that's so. I think that what they say is that in a, they guarantee you that they'll double after 20, That's but it could be less if interest rates are better. So, mm-hmm. And then after 30, you get nothing. Yeah. 
So this is another example of why I like I-bonds better, because <laughs> it's, you know, I, I know exactly what I'm getting. I'm getting a fixed return adjusted for inflation. Um, I pay the face value. So it's, a, you know, a much simpler kind of math. Well, and aren't they, um, Michael, aren't they five, you says in here five years or? Well, it, the only thing about that is if you can, you can cash them in whenever you want. But if you cash them in for less than five years, you lose the last three months of interest. So, because that's what I was looking at them years ago, and I think I bought I bought several of them in 2000, 2001, and I was looking at them for how long I had to hold them before I could cash them in for my kids' tuition. And at that point, it was like about five years. Well, then I forgot about them, and then uh, this year, I decided I was going to cash them in, so it's been about a decade. Yeah, so you won't pay any penalty at all. No, and I didn't, and I'll tell you that they were I-bonds, because I, I'm not buying I, there was no way I'd buy double E bonds or anything else. Like you say, I bonds are much better. Yeah. And they're simpler. And rate of return in the uh, first decade here was uh, 6.14%. I was astounded. Yeah. Yeah, no, I bought, no, they, yeah. I mean, they, they've done pretty well. In the last decade, they did well. Now, well, in the next decade, well, they'll do that well. It's hard to say. Right. Right. No, they, they, they definitely have not been a terrible. I mean, the thing is, is during that period of time, people scoffed at a 5% or 6% rate of return because they'd say, well, I can earn 12 in the market. Well, good luck earning 12 in the market today. No, they're, they're a nice product. Uh, yeah. I think this I-bonds are much, uh, and they're much simpler for people to understand. They are. They, uh, they, yeah, they have some advantages, definitely. Um, you know, I think E's still, still are maybe a better gift, <laughs> particularly the paper E's. But, yeah, some people are more familiar with the E's. But I's are a nice innovation, for sure. You mean the double E's? Yeah, double E's, sorry. Because yeah. I know there are some E's still in existence. Yeah. Well, let me just say a little bit about the, the, the advent of payroll deduction. If you have a Treasury Direct account, you can essentially get a, um, and I don't think I included it here, but you can use a form with your employer. So if you go to Treasury Direct, you can find there's a form you can use with your employer, and you can do old-fashioned payroll deduction right into your, your e-bonds, and you can do e, I'm sorry, into your electronic savings bonds, whether they're e or i. It doesn't matter if they're e-series or i-series. You can do electronic purchase through direct deposit. The reasons why you might do this is, is one, it can be any denomination, so you can do a percent of your salary or a fixed amount. Um, with the electronic versions, you can you can do either. Um, and we know that automated payroll deduction is probably the best way to save. It's the most, you know, if you're left on your own devices to have to actually get to the bank or to actually execute a purchase online, you're less likely to do it than if you have it done automatically for you. So um, that payroll deduction feature of, of Treasury Direct has been a nice innovation. And as I said, you, well, in order to buy bonds in general from Treasury Direct, you have to link it to a, a bank account. You can set it up so that you can do a direct deposit from your employer to Treasury Direct, even if you don't have a, a savings account. The big thing last tax year for the for people who filed their taxes, their 2009 tax returns in 2010, was uh, a few years ago we had this new IRS form 8888888. So this was the new form uh, introduced, I think, about five years ago that let you split your refund between, say, checking and savings or multiple accounts. Last year, Treasury included, or the IRS included on that form 8888, the option to split your refund partially in, partially or entirely into an I-bond, a paper or electronic I-bond. 
Um, the paper ones had to be in round dollar amounts, and they would be mailed to you. If you did the electronic form, you could just actually put in the routing number, and then their account, they had a code called bonds, um, which allowed you to um, you know, purchase your bonds. And, or if you had a Treasury Direct account number, you could put in your Treasury Direct account number. So there were three different ways that you could do these. So basically, if you had a tax refund of $1,000, you could choose to, say, put 745 of it into bonds and take the rest in cash, um, which you could either do electronic or paper. So that, that was a big innovation. The problem with that last year was that you could only do bonds in your own Social Security number. So uh, only the Social Security number listed... I believe that at the, and somebody can correct me if they ran a VITA site and tried to do this, it was only the first social security number listed on the return. Um, so you couldn't split them across different people. Or, and the other problem is you couldn't buy them for your grandkids. So you couldn't buy them for other people's social security numbers that you might want to. Um, so for 2010 tax year, so people who are filing their taxes in 2011, you will have the opportunity in, in Form 88 to buy as many bonds as the form can handle, and I think you could actually just add more forms for lots of different social security numbers. So you could buy them for a spouse, for a kid, for a grandkid, for your neighbor, whatever you want to do. It's still going to be I-bonds. You still have the option to get the paper ones in round dollar amounts mailed to you or do electronic ones, um, either through the routing number or through your Treasury Direct account. So there'll be a lot more flexibility into that. The D2D fund, which I talked about before, did a pilot the last three years, um, one with H&R Block and one with community-based tax or uh, tax preparation VITA sites. And they found that taxpayers, low-income taxpayers who had very little connection with financial services in general, they knew that savings bonds were something that was backed up by the government and that were a way to save that they trusted. So it had some brand recognition to it. And while many of them had didn't, uh, while they had big refunds, they, they didn't always have leftover refund. Essentially, they'd already spent it. So there wasn't a lot of refund that wasn't already committed to some other task. For those who maybe got a bigger refund than they initially thought, or um, once they realized that they could buy a savings bond for as little as, you know, $25, they were willing to buy them. And, you know, they, they were finding 10 to 15% of people, um, or as many as 20% of people who had refunds over some amount, were willing to do bonds. And many of them, um, because of this program, the way this program was designed, they could buy them for other people. They were able to buy, they were interested in buying them for their kids or grandkids. Um, so there's a nice report I give a link to there about their, their bond pilot testing that they did. I think that was pretty influential to Treasury and to IRS as they created their program they rolled out last year. Um, so that's interesting to look at. Um, just a few more quick points about bonds I mean, in terms of taxes. Um, you do have to pay income tax, obviously, on any bond income. But generally, savings in uh, your state income taxes, Wisconsin taxes, wouldn't be paid. And then you don't really have to pay the taxes until you actually redeem the bonds. So I don't think that was the case with the HHs. I, mean, I can't remember that. But anyway, with the E's and the I's, you don't pay until you redeem. So you don't have to incur that, that tax until you actually take the money. There is the education bond program which says when you use bond proceeds, and maybe Peggy, you learned this, um, for certain uses, you can have that that interest be tax-free. Um, so this is different from a 529. This is, you put money into these bonds. You, I think you can backwardsly say, okay, these were the bonds I intended to be education bonds, and then when they mature and you use them, you don't have to pay taxes on the proceeds. Um, the financial, finaid.org is a website of the financial aid 
programs, and you can see more details about how those work. I actually haven't had much experience with them to know how well that works, but it's a nice idea, at least, that you can have some tax-free education expenses there. Um, I listed a couple of websites of other cooperative extension materials around savings bonds. One is e-extension, the other one is uh, just an example I pulled from Penn State. I found them at many other extensions, including Wisconsin. I would say, in general, the way that, that extension educators have treated bonds in the past is sort of a, a, a more in the context of a portfolio and how you treat bonds as part of your investment portfolio as this, you know, alternative to stocks. And, you know, I think that's certainly one way to think about bonds. You know, my my sense is that that there's this niche for bonds that maybe we're underestimating, which is that they are they are a good resource for people who don't have a lot of experience with savings and are underbanked. And, you know, maybe the populations that you work with a lot anyway, particularly for um, people who want to buy bonds or, you know, create some kind of an asset for their kids or grandkids or a special um, sort of category. You know, I think this connection starting last year with the tax sites is a, is a very new development that's pretty exciting and could get a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't save into savings, um, into long-term savings, not just as we, we've seen some savings programs at tax sites in the past where people just end up deferring the spending their refund for a couple months until they deplete their bank account. Certainly they could be cashing out their bonds, but it's a little harder. And, you know, as Peggy said before, you kind of forget about it. Um, so it may encourage people to, to save a little bit longer than they might with a traditional savings account. You know, I go back to the virtues of these bonds. They're risk, essentially risk-free, especially the I-bonds because there's no inflation risk. And there's no expenses. I mean, other than you know, the expense of your time maybe of, of keeping up with the treasury.gov website or the um, treasurydirect.gov website or going to the bank to, to manage them. Um, very little fees. You're not paying anybody else any fees. And, you know, everybody says, well, bonds don't pay very much or the returns are low um, compared to what you might get in equities. You know, I think if anything, the last five years have shown us that if you chase returns, you sometimes can pay the price for that. And the most important way to save, and this is shown in study after study, of, of who is secure for retirement and who's not, it's not about what what asset class you chose or, you know, what your risk tolerance is or anything else. It's did you save regularly? Did you actually put aside money every month and do it in a consistent way over a number of years? That's how you get to retirement security. It's, it's not about picking the, you know, the winners because nobody – Nobody consistently picks the winners over time. You know, the, the the mutual fund investors who were riding high in the 90s are all riding low today. It's you know nobody has bats a thousand consistently. So, you know, continuous contributions of regular amounts into very stable products like savings bonds really are the key. And you know, savings bonds are low cost. They're easy. People get them. They have this brain recognition. You know, they they have the ability to be used in a more flexible way, I think, than they have in the past. So they, they certainly have some some um, potential going forward. And, uh, you know, we might start to think about them in that new light. So I'll stop there and see if people have discussion or questions or whatever else. Has anybody done any specific education outreach around bonds? This is Judy. I haven't, just to let you know we're still listening to you. Okay, good. Yeah, no, not everybody dropped off. And this is Linda Olson. I really had planned to do something at our tax site last year, and I just couldn't get it together enough to be able to do that. But 
put a poster up on our bulletin board letting them know that they could um, get them through their tax returns, but I didn't even have any requests. Yeah. And I think tax sites who have done them have found that they have to train train the volunteers, train the administrators, practice with the new forms, and then really try to educate people on site about what they are and how they work, especially that first year. So it did take some effort. Now, the one thing I would say about savings bonds, as opposed to almost every other product that's out there, you know, if you invite a financial institution to come in and do some education, they're happy to train all about how to use credit cards and checking accounts and savings accounts because they have some vested interest in it. Insurance, mutual funds, you name it. There's somebody, some salesman out there who's interested in doing education, quote-unquote education around these topics. Savings bonds, there's really no, <laughs> there's nothing like that. Treasury doesn't have people going around the country talking about the value of savings bonds. So there really is very little, other than the website, um, very little promotional work or activity or education around savings bonds. So um, you know, in some ways, if you don't do it, I'm not sure who will. Oh, here's a question just to clarify with the no fees. So if you have a paper bond and you take it into a bank, the bank doesn't take a cut or, or won't or can't charge you a fee for that? They are uh, They are part of the Federal Reserve System. The Federal Reserve is the clearinghouse for savings bonds of all kinds. And just like that bank sends their old currency in and gets new currency from the Fed, they send in their bonds and you know, they don't get pay any fees for these other services they get from the Fed, and they don't pay any fees to get that bond cash. So there's no fathomable way that they should be charging you a fee for that service. Okay, so as long as it's an FDIC, and does that apply to credit unions? It sure does. Okay, thanks. They're all getting currency from the Fed's check, you know, whatever, their check cashing and their currency clearance and all the other services they get. This is just part of that package. Just not our check cashing stores. Right, right. You know, that's a great question. If you took a bond into a cash check casher, what in the world would they do with it? I have no idea. I might have to try that. Yeah, just to find out. Um, you know, you just mentioned something that <clears throat> made me think about um, if this is a possibility for the financial education team. Um, you said if nobody teaches about uh, – if we don't teach about bonds, nobody, probably no one else will. And so I'm wondering – I had never thought of it that way – and I'm wondering if the the team, if this is something that the team could consider in terms of or search out, you know, to see if there is, you know, an hour presentation with some PowerPoints or whatever that could be used. Maybe somebody's already done it. Um, or perhaps the team could consider doing something that for, like that for um, use around the state by either family living or 4-H or whatever the case might be, because if no one else is is teaching about it, that might be a, a worthwhile thing to do. No, I'll just I'll just say as state specialist, I would be more than happy to support an effort of some educators who are interested in, in working on something like that. Maybe we can find out if someone has done anything like that or if there is some sort of site, uh, some, uh, some other... Uh, group across the country who has a, you know, some teaching materials for us to use that might be useful for us. I was thinking the same thing, Marma. And I'm thinking that's a great idea, too. The only thing I'm thinking is that perhaps I would be using that 
uh, teaching along with some other types of investments. Right. Or, or as Linda was saying something about, uh, was it the Vita site that you were talking about, um, Linda? Yes. Um, using it at, at a site like that or, you know, uh, whatever. Or I'm thinking along with get checking, you know, maybe having something like that along with get checking might be an option as well. Actually, that would be a good piece to add into get checking because I find a lot of people who come to get checking don't have savings and don't think they can because they don't have much money. But for, as Michael shared, it doesn't take much to buy a savings bond. But I'd certainly be glad to work with that, work with you on there, at least to see if somebody else has put something together and if not, how we might move forward. I was thinking Money Smart Week, too. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Well, if there's there's a few people who want to volunteer to be part of a little ad hoc group or committee, um, just shoot me an email, and I'd be glad to, um, you know, maybe arrange another call or just some coordination by email to try to figure out if we can do some research and and make a plan. But Peggy, as co-chair of the team, I guess I should let you voice an opinion. Uh, I'm just listening here. So, no, I, I guess I don't know any resources. I think it's kind of... The topic that might come up or maybe we'll mention a few sentences in a newsletter or something when we're talking about savings, um, but certainly there's more we could be doing, and I'm thinking it would be great for a news release, too. Mm-hmm. And it would also be good for news release closer to tax time with all, with the number of family living educators that are helping with VITA sites or people taking advantage of them. I think that would be a, another time when we could also do a news release. Yeah, we don't have a Vita site here, but I, I, I could envision using a few extra pieces, pieces of material, uh, or a few extra slides and with that checking or something on that order. Well, I think that's, I, I, I think this is exciting. So I'm, uh, I'm more than happy to, to help try to move this forward. But if you're interested, shoot me an email. I heard Judy. Anybody else? I'll send you an email right now. Okay. This is Linda. I'd be interested. Great. Are you interested, Marma? Um, I, uh, I, since I wouldn't use it very much, I don't know. I mean, I'd use it in get in get checking, perhaps. Okay. At, as a full blown, you know, sure. In, at a Vita site or anything like that. Although okay. I do think um, Money Smart Week would be a really good idea. Mm-hmm. That'd be a good target for us to get our to get our stuff together, whatever it is. And I think it's for Money Smart Week because we could do it at some of the family resource centers that um, work with lower-income families. I'm thinking that would be a kind of an interesting program to do. I'd be happy to react to some things. Okay. All right, well, I want to thank everybody. I know we're coming to the end of our hour, but um, this is uh, I, I'm excited. You're excited about this topic, and I look forward to next steps. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thank you.